Gracious God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, quicken our understanding so that we may receive the testimony of Scripture and believe in the signs that reveal your presence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our reading from the Gospel of John is the story of Jesus going to a wedding and working the first of what John does not call miracles, but signs. Thus, other Gospel writers speak of miracles as deeds of power. For John, the miracles do function as potential signs of legitimization to demonstrate to the people that Jesus has divine power, divine authority. But the signs indicate something symbolic about who God is and what God does. God transforms the ordinary into the extraordinary, offers people health, sustenance, life. The miracles are signs because they are charged with symbolism, signifying something more than the fact that some deed of power has occurred. Well, at the end of John's Gospel, he writes, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. Well, John describes seven signs, the first of which is our text today. And in fact, this is a story that's only told in John's Gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't mention it. Now, weddings in the New Testament days were very different from weddings now. Now, the couple picks a location to be married, a place to celebrate. Then they work on a guest list. You sure you want to invite so-and-so? <laughs> They plan a series of showers and dinners and so on before the happy event and a big celebration after the ceremony and often a trip somewhere, maybe somewhere exotic. And the bride's parents, well, they calculate whether they'll be able to take out a big enough second mortgage. <laughs> well, in New Testament days, a wedding was a community event that lasted days Sometimes, well, sometimes a week. On the day of the wedding, the bride would bathe and anoint herself with oil and perfume and dress in special clothes and jewelry and garlands. Well, that kind of sounds like now too, doesn't it? But not just the bride, the groom would too. The bride would wear her veil until she was alone with the groom. None of this, take it off and you may kiss the bride stuff. Now, as we do now, each of them had attendants, and the groom had a friend who served as sort of a best man. The groom and his companions would process to the bride's home where greetings and presents would be exchanged, and then they'd return to the groom's home in a procession with music and lanterns. Remember, Jesus told a parable about that kind of procession. You can read it in Matthew 25. In the parable, there were five foolish bridesmaids who didn't take oil with them and five bridesmaids who did take enough or save some oil. Well, the couple would be taken, they'd be taken the most winding way possible 
to allow most of the people in town to greet them and wish them well. When they got to the groom's house, there'd be a banquet, but the first, the contract would be read. And it might be something like we read in uh, the prophet Hosea, second chapter, where he says, I will take you for my wife forever. I will take you for my wife in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will take you for my wife in faithfulness. Or maybe it was something like that promise that was found in an ancient document. She is my wife and I am her husband from this day and forever. One time Betty and I were getting our wills redone and I, I mentioned to our attorney that I said, you know, we had a prenup and he said, oh, and Betty looked up and said, oh. I said, yeah, it said, this is for keeps. <laughs> well, the guest would then, they'd bless the couple and they'd say things like, may the God of heaven keep you safe and give you peace and prosperity. And then they'd have a big meal attended by friends and relatives of the, both families and everybody would wear their best clothes. In fact, it was a serious insult to turn down a wedding invitation or not to dress for the occasion. Well, how do we know that? We'll read the parable of the wedding banquet in the 22nd chapter of Matthew, where people didn't show up and didn't dress right. The happy couple, they didn't just get married and have a feast and leave. They didn't jump in the cars decorated with just married and ride off with tin cans rattling behind them like we used to do. They stayed home and they had open house for a whole week. This might give you an idea now. <laughs> a whole week. They would be dressed in their bridal robes. They would wear crowns. It'd be kind of like we do in February, right? And they would, they'd be treated like a king and queen. These are people that usually, people know they live a hard life. But a wedding, a wedding's grand and happy occasion. Their usual diet included grains and vegetables and fruit and olives and eggs and once in a while, fish, but not much meat. And it wasn't because they were vegetarians. They just didn't have much. It was expensive. It was hard to do. They would be reluctant to kill the few animals they had, but then, hey, a wedding banquet, that would include meat. And there'd be lots of food and wine. Lots and lots of wine. Well, with all that in mind, listen now for God's word for us in the second chapter of John, the first 11 verses. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that of, to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. 
He said to them, now, draw some out. Take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said, everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the, after the guests have become drunk. But you, you kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. O oh Lord, may my words and may our thoughts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and redeemer. Amen. How many gallons? That's the question my sermon title asked this week. You remember we just read that John says that there were six stone tablets, or stone jars, I should say, for the Jewish rites of purification, each of them 20 or 30 gallons. So if you say the average jar held about 25 gallons, that would be 150 gallons of wine. You could open a store. That's a lot of wine. Just, well, I'll show you. I started to bring one of those uh, big garbage bins we have on the fellowship hall, and I decided I might get in trouble with Linda if I did that. <laughs> this is a 30-gallon sack that would fit that. Six of those full of wine. You could uh, get a thirsty crowd in trouble with that much wine. <laughs> 30 gallons. In fact, if you're going to go buy it, you might have to use this. I got a coupon from uh, Barnes & Noble or the, wine, or in the Wall, Wall Street Journal sells wine. I thought they just did newspaper, but they offer $100 off in a wine voucher. That wouldn't buy, that, that wouldn't buy 30 gallons, much less 150 gallons of wine. If anybody needs this coupon that's going to have wind or anything, let me know. <laughs> Maybe cheer wine you could buy. <laughs> well, imagine six of those men. But what's the point? Why did John include this in his limited six number of six sign stories? Why did Jesus do this? And what does a what did a wedding in Cana? about nine miles from Nazareth. What does that have to do with us today? Well, if we look at the story more closely, we, maybe we can see if we can get a grip on some of those questions. Well, one question is, why did Jesus work this miracle? It's impressive, but as uh, the scholar Belbert Gavent has pointed out, this miracle is different from other miracles recorded in the gospel. It does not give, it doesn't give sight to a blind person it does not restore an ailing child to his worried parents. 
He doesn't rescue people. Remember the disciples in peril on the sea and Jesus calmed the sea? Doesn't do anything like that. So why did Jesus do it? Now before you say, because his mama told him to, <laughs> look again. The third verse said, when the wine gave out, Mother Jesus said to him, they have no wine. She reported a fact. She did not tell her son, fix it. She did not tell him to spike the water jars. By the way, did you notice that John did not say Mary, but mother of Jesus? John's gospel never calls Mary by name. Now one day we'll get to heaven and we can ask him, why'd you do that? We don't know. Well, she didn't exactly tell him what to do, but he got the message. The fourth verse says, Jesus replied, what concern is that is to you and to me, my hour has not yet come. If you read through the Gospels, you find Jesus does not do miracles when people demand them, when they ask for a sign. And also notice John does not say explicitly Jesus did something to the water. Mary told the servants to do whatever Jesus told them, and he told them to fill the six stone jars and to take a sample of the steward, and voila, lots and lots of wine, about 150 gallons. Now, if this, done, if this was going to be a sign done to impress everybody, surely Jesus would have made a show of it. The whole crowd, everybody there would have known what happened. But from what we read here in John, the only ones who knew what happened were the servants and the disciples. This is not a sign done to wow, to impress, to go viral, we might say. It was done to reveal Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us. It's a sign that revealed his glory and the disciples believed in him. We're in this season of epiphany. It's a season that's about God and God's work being revealed to us. So what can we learn from this story of water turning into wine at a wedding in Canaan? Well, first we can learn that God's glory can be revealed in both extraordinary and ordinary events all around us. We need to do what, there's a poet, Mary Oliver, who died last week, but she said, instruct, and one of her little poems was instructions from the Lord. Pay attention, be astonished, tell about it. Paying attention and being astonished are not just jobs for scientists or artists or small children, but for us all. God's marvelous handiwork is all around us, both in the wonders of nature and in the wonderful people that God has put here to be with us on our life's journey. So pay attention, prepare to be astonished, and tell about it. Share the good news. From the sheer volume of the wine, we learn that God is abundantly, exceedingly, marvelously extravagant. You read that in the, in the parable of the sower and they sow the seed and they just fling it everywhere, good ground, the bad ground. God's the extravagant seed sower. You read that in the parable of the prodigal son 
where he doesn't just say, well, I'm glad you're home. I hope you're going to learn to do better. Now the father runs to greet the son and has a feast to welcome him home. So many parables where Jesus represents God. God is extravagant. When my mother taught Betty how to make macaroni and cheese, and I'm not talking about that junk in a box. I'm talking about the real thing from scratch. She told her the secret. She said, put twice, put in twice as much cheese as you think it needs, and then put some more. <laughs> if you're chinchy with the cheese, she said, it won't be any good. God is extravagant like that especially extravagant with us in terms of the grace we are granted and the blessings we receive. The writer of uh, books like A Wrinkle in Time and so many others, Madeline Langle, was asked about the art of wine hosting and she said, at a most basic level, the host, the job of the wine host or the job for everyday Christians is to serve lavishly what you have been given. The point is to be ready at all times to give and to serve what God has given us. To manifest God's glory by reaching out with the ordinary, to manifest God in your own givenness through everyday opportunities. She said, it may be that turning six jars of water into wine will be your given task, but I doubt it. On the other hand, it could mean turning your jar of peanut butter into sandwiches for people who are homeless and hungry, or turning your voice into corporate praise as we are doing this Sunday morning. So what has God given you in time or talents or opportunities to share with to bless someone who needs a word of encouragement? who needs a helping hand, who needs a friend. If you pay attention, you will find ways you can be a blessing. Well, what else can we learn? Well, like the servants who fetched those 150 gallons of water, don't you know they were tired, to fill the jars to the brim, we can learn from Mary's instruction. Remember she said, do whatever he tells you. That's the promise we make when we baptize babies in our denomination. We promise to teach them what Jesus had taught us. You know, things like, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Not hate your enemies, but love your enemies. Spread the good news. Thanks be to God. May you be as happy as the bride and groom in the wedding that Jesus, his mother, and disciples attended at Cana. May you know that God loves you and calls you by name, that Jesus lived and died and rose and is coming again, that the Holy Spirit empowers you to do God's work in this world. And may God bless you and keep you until we meet again. Amen.